at the Center for Education Research and Innovation, we're in the habit of asking questions that matter and looking for answers that impact. But how do you do that? How does a researcher get to that point? What we do know is that researchers are united in their curiosity. What we don't know is the stories behind the curiosity. Let's dive in. Welcome everyone to another episode of the Curiosity Habit. And today I have the great pleasure to have with me Dr. Renee Starkmeyer from Maastricht University. She's an assistant professor in the Department of Education and Development and Research, as well as in the School of Health Professions Education. And she's also the chair of Task Force on Program Evaluation at the Faculty of Medicine and Life Sciences, as I said, at Maastricht University. Welcome, Renee, to the show. Very much appreciated you being with us today. Thank you for having me, Syra. And like I said, I'm very curious about the podcast. So uh, let's get started. And I appreciate your understanding in my pronunciation of your name, which I try to do my best, but thank you very much. Okay, so the way we usually start this conversation is to know a little bit more about the person as they were growing up. I think to me, the interest we have when we are little usually inform the interest we develop when we're older. So I'm always curious to know a little bit about your growing up years, your family, who was your hero, uh, what kind of curiosities you had when you were growing up, if you can share with us. Sure. Um, well, I were, as I, I'm now in Maastricht and I grew up not too far from here, actually, about um, 15, 20 kilometers up north in a, in a small town with my, uh, my mother and father and my little brother. Um, and uh, yeah, I spent my years there till I was 17 and then we moved to, uh, to Maastricht. Um, so I have my mother and father actually not too far away from me, a couple of blocks uh, up south uh, from, my, from where I'm sitting. And my brother lives up, lives up north. Um, and my mother and father were in one way or another, both in education, but also in music. Oh, so uh, my parents met at the conservatory studying music. My uh, mother was studying to become a singing teacher and a recorder teaching teacher. Mm -hmm. And my father uh, studied uh, what they call here in the Netherlands school music. So teaching music in primary schools, high schools. Um, and that's, uh, that's how they met. And then a couple of years later, uh, I arrived and I think especially music all always kind of, yeah, dominated my years growing up, um, listening to it. I think in, in primary school, I found out that it, that yeah, children my age didn't usually listen to classical music, which I thought was very strange, but for me it was very regular in, uh, in, in growing up. Um, and kind of for the first time figuring out that I maybe also liked other stuff. I think the first time thing I heard that I like was a song by Two Unlimited or something. <laughs> uh, so this is situating us in the in the early nineties. Okay. Um, yeah, and uh, I I well they of course um, uh, were also keen on me learning to play a musical instrument. Um, and I had a go at several actually. So I, I started out with violin, did that a couple of years and then piano. And then I settled on the cello, oh, wow. uh, which was the instrument which kind of uh, felt best to me. And I also really liked the sounds mm -hmm. um, and I have quite musical hearings. 
so it was relatively easy to pick up playing a string uh, string instruments but at the same time i have to say this was not my passion really i mean it was everyone in the, in the family and not just my my parents but for example also my um the, the family on my father's side mainly they all were very involved in music and my grandfather was an, was an oboist in the in the symphonic orchestra here in Maastricht. Um, his brother composed music, uh, so everyone had something to do with with music, mm-hmm. um, and uh, the how the family kind of the extended family got to know me because when I uh, so in the south of the Netherlands is pretty Catholic, so. Mm-hmm regularly you you take your holy communion um and i was uh, uh, chosen to sing during the ceremony and the whole family was oh we have a oh, singer wow. another singer <laughs> everyone was so happy about it um and also kind of old uncles and aunts extended yeah. family like oh yeah you're also you also have the musical gene everyone's so happy but um yeah for me it wasn't it was a, a natural gift, but not a natural passion, I'd say. Okay. Um, so how so, did you navigate the expectations? Because all your family came to see you, so they were probably expecting you to continue. Yeah, no, for me, it was more of the performance at that moment in time. Like, okay, I'm, I'm expected to perform, and I could do that well. I didn't have any stage fright or something. Um, but, yeah, that, that was not always easy, especially uh, when... So yeah, you have to realize the, the teacher's salary is not very high, but my parents were really keen on really buying me a violin, buying me a cello. And I was going through the motions of taking these lessons and had the practicing had kind of dropped in frequency, uh, but still they were very eager to get me an instrument because it was an investment. But at the same time that felt, yeah, not yeah I felt complicated right because oh you're you're paying thousands of euros for an instrument which I probably won't play a lot in the future um so I tried to voice that wasn't very successful and the cello is now in my in my parents attic oh no (laughs) yeah no I know I haven't played for years I, I I I got it out of the dust or I dusted it off uh for a wedding of a friend who asked for me to play but that's already more than 10 years ago, I'd say. And I do have a, a piano, uh, which I kind of inherited when my, uh, when my parents uh, got, a, got a newer model. Um, but, and I yeah, just sometimes like to sit behind it and play a little kind of the, the finger memory of some pieces I still have in my, my, my fingers. But uh, no, nowadays I enjoy listening to music more than uh, playing music myself. Okay, so that was not your natural passion, you said that. No. So wh- what was it? What did you discover was your passion? How did you discover that? Yeah, I think um, it's not a very pronounced passion. I, I, I figured out, and actually I, I took a course to figure this out, uh, when I, at the end of my university days, like trying to find what steps do you want to take in your career? What's, what, what, what's, uh, what do you like? Um, and the thing they asked us to do was to write down um, memories from your childhood that brought you joy. And then especially looking at the verbs. So it was a very constructivist grounded theory approach. <laughs> I can tell. <laughs> and looking at the verbs of these, these experiences of what it was you like to do. 
And from that experience, I actually learned that what I like to do a lot is listen uh, to music, to stories, to people's experiences. So one of these memories that I had to describe that I described was that I really enjoyed being read to as a child. Um, so storybooks, uh, and I could really immerse myself in that and imagine that world. And just the, mm-hmm. I think uh, having my imaginative worlds uh, yeah having that brought to life or something through the stories is something that always drew me in Um, and I enjoyed uh, yeah doing little plays with my friends I ended up in the in my final years in primary school I I participated in a youth theater project Uh, we performed Charlie and the Chocolate Factory I was Willy Wonka. I had a, a stick on goatee. <laughs> um, but yeah, so things art related. Uh, I like to draw. I like to listen to stories. I'd like to write stories. I enjoyed writing. Yeah. I always thought, and that was, this was the funny bits, that course I was talking about that I took. Um, I said to one of the, 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 the moderators of that course, I always thought that I'd grow up to become a writer and a traveler. Uh And then that person said to me, well, there are so many different ways you can do that, right? And if you now look at your work, my work, what it is that we do, a lot of it is writing and traveling. Yeah, exactly. So that's, uh, yeah, that's something that I I learned. And I think was was a slumbering passion or something below the surface all these years. And how did it help you decide uh, what to do after professionally in your career? That, that course, you mean? Or that- yes, the, the whole realization that what you are passionate about is like listening. And well, I don't think it actually factored in a lot, really. So the thing um, you need to know to understand my path is that I, I struggled quite a bit in high school. Okay. And especially with uh, the... Yeah, the exact subjects, as we say here. So math, uh, physics, um, the um, chemistry. Yeah. And But I excelled in languages, history, geography, art. I took art history as, as one of my subjects in, in high school. Um, but the majority of the university programs require you to have, have an entrance requirement, requirement of, um, yeah, some kind of physics or mathematics um so first i was trying to work around my deficiencies thinking of okay what university programs can i apply to yeah and at first that was law that i was started thinking about and i also thought about philosophy for a little bit um but then one day um i opened the newspaper and they were announcing a new university program to be started, which was called Educational Sciences at Maastricht University. Oh. And um, there and then, but the, the thing was, I would graduate that year, but the program wouldn't start till the year after. Okay. But there and then I decided to enroll in that program, mm. uh, take a deficiency course. <laughs> in mathematics because they did require mathematics uh, and work throughout that year so yeah it was just this little newspaper clipping where I thought 
I'd never considered it, but this, this is, this is what, this is what I like. This is what is me. This yeah. is uh, where I think I belong. Oh. Um, yeah. So it was more serendipitous than very well planned. I have to say. Yeah. Most, um, for most of us, that's kind of the path, right? Also trying mm-hmm. to be away from the things that you don't really enjoy doing like math and <laughs> chemistry and things like that. Yeah. Okay, so fast forward medical education because that's education sciences broader, right? Mm-hmm. So, what was the trans? How was the transition from there to medical education? How did you end up in this community? Thanks to whom? Thanks to what? Thanks to Wim Keizelaars. Okay, uh, Wim Keizelaars. Uh, he was a former professor in the department where I work now but he uh, migrated to another faculty of business and economics. And he was the course coordinator of one of the final year courses that I took in educational sciences, which was called management of learning. Mm -hmm. And it's it approached learning from individual level, team level, organizational level. And part of the course was writing an essay in separate. So each week you wrote a chapter of the essay based on the PBL tutorials you had on, on the topic. Um, And based on my essay, he offered me an internship at his department. And based on my interests in uh, curriculum change and why is curriculum change so very difficult, uh, he suggested that I would apply a theoretical framework that one of his PhD students was using Mm -hmm. to study the most recent curriculum change at the Faculty of Medicine. And my second assessor became uh, the, the, the adjunct uh, or the adjunct dean there um, was very much involved in that, that curriculum change. And a couple of weeks before the end of my internship, I got a call on a Friday. I will re- I remember it well saying, yeah, you know that we've been trying to see whether we can hire you here, right? Uh, no, oh. I didn't know. <laughs> could, you, could you come this afternoon and have a meeting with Kees van der Vleuten? Oh. Um, this is the head of departments, who was the head of department at that time. Um, okay, sure. Um, me on my bicycle, because the it's on the other side of the river, geographically in Maastricht, to have a meeting. And he said something along the lines of, we're really interested in having... Uh, uh, some of the the fresh new graduates from educational sciences to come and work at our departments and and would you be interested and yeah I haven't left the department since I've been there since 2005 now wow fascinating it's kind of the perfect topic at the perfect time perfect topic perfect time people uh, seeing opportunities that I of course as a junior had no idea of existing Mm -hmm. Um, and they offered me a position where I would be joining the task force of program evaluation while at the same time doing my PhD. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, so I did, I did a part-time, uh, construction in that sense. Right. Yeah. So then you develop, I, I'm going to call it passion or focus on workplace learning and supervision. Mm-hmm. What is it about that topic that kind of sparks your interest? How did you came about that idea of focusing on workplace learning it wasn't my idea i was okay. there was there was a need uh, seen to do something with the topic by uh, one of my supervisors diana dolmans 
who suggested that I started with that topic. Um, And it aligned very well with my program evaluation tasks because we saw it kind of in the light of program evaluation, trying to optimize educational processes and especially during workplace learning, supervision and guidance is of of course key. Mm -hmm. Um, But I, I very quickly became fascinated by this physician worlds. Um, Very interested in medicine, could never be a medical doctor myself, but very much enjoy being involved in a field which is focusing on improving the training of of physicians, of healthcare professionals. And um, yeah, I, I I got to visit all these hospitals, talk to medical doctors, start to see things from their, their perspective using a a theoretical lens, which came from the educational sciences, cognitive apprenticeship. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it was a a match. It was a great match. And I enjoyed um, trying to work with them to optimize clinical teaching. Um, But kind of the the passion to really start and optimize workplace learning kind of became, yeah, got got more emphasized in the end of my, my PhD, where I saw all these gaps where I thought, but why, why haven't we questioned that before? Why is everything so stuck in certain ways, right? Um, and that, uh, that spurred me uh, uh, to, uh, to look into topics of how is the team involved in supervision? Um, how is the complete healthcare team involved? So not just intra-professionally, but inter-professionally. Um, and that I, I started exploring that with some of my PhD students. Mm-hmm. I spent time at both the Wilson Center and uh, Chess in Vancouver in 2012, exploring those topics. Um, but at the same time, my role in task force program evaluation very much pushed me towards concepts of learning climates um, and all kinds of measurements where uh, the, the residents, but also the medical students could evaluate their learning experience mm-hmm. and yeah, develop a language through which to capture that just being there is not enough to learn. You <laughs> There needs to be some kind of interaction engagement. Yeah. And I was very lucky to uh, collaborate with Pia Strand, who is at Lund University in Sweden. Mm-hmm. Um, who was through an action research process uh, trying to uh, really delve into that, develop a, another instrument, working with the instrument that I had developed. Um, and we got a great response to that. And the one of the main products coming from my PhD, the Master Technical Teaching Questionnaire, has thus far been translated into 12 languages, ranging from Portuguese to Japanese. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it really fill the needs um but there were so many other gaps that started to pop up because of because of that uh, that research that's so interesting so your focus is supervision workplace supervision and learning and the fact that you are a masturation because of the nature of the program you have to supervise many international students so in supervising so many international students what have you learned about research mentorship that has made you more effective at that thus far? Um, One of the things that, yeah, I learned by doing, uh, but also by thinking of the the, the framework I use myself is 
um, developing a shared language and shared understanding. Mm -hmm. Example, <laughs> I supervised a PhD student in Indonesia and she was uh, uh, working on a study original idea didn't really work out and then I thought I had this brilliant idea of how to approach the data analysis using a conceptual framework and uh, she had spent some time in Maastricht so we had the meeting team meeting came up with a plan this is what she was going to do and then she went back home and then she just dropped off dropped off the radar couldn't get in touch with her she didn't show up to pre-planned meetings and after a couple of months and a lot of kind of pushing from our sides, um, she confessed that my brilliant idea didn't work, but she was too afraid to tell me. Ooh. So that taught me a lot about how to uh, contextualize feedback, how to explain its uh, value and that it's a, an ongoing conversation that I'm throwing out ideas that I'm trying to help. But if it's not helpful, please tell me. Uh -huh. <laughs> it's not like the, the, especially what I learned from working with people in, uh, in the Southeast Asian countries and in Indonesia, Japan, um, there is this image of the professor who is untouchable, who has, who knows the truth, the truth, very much holy grail, everything. Um, whereas, especially in the Dutch culture, that's really not the case. Uh, we're, we're, we, we are more egalitarian in that sense. We have that conversation, not as afraid to have a different opinion. But for those students, that was unthinkable. Unthinkable. Mm -hmm. So I think my the main thing is about how to give feedback, how to... Um, have a relationship with someone in that sense, kind of a, a mentor relationship, trying to understand what, why they're doing a PhD, what's in it for them. The majority of these students do it part-time as well, next mm -hmm. to a busy uh, job, family, um, trying to understand how we can make it work within that, that context. So contextualizing. Mm -hmm. um, but also... And that's depending a little bit on at which level they are in their career to show them that, yes, you need to focus on your PhD, but career-wise, it's, I think, a very good idea to also um, make field trips and tastes of other areas to get a sense of where you belong, right? What you want to do. Um, especially in the Netherlands, we also have PhD students who start to do it straight after their, um, uh, their master's, yeah. uh, where it's a full-time PhD, and um, they don't always decide to continue in academia mm -hmm. for various reasons, but trying to understand what your strengths are, playing to your strengths, helping them discover those, I think from a mentoring perspective is something that I value very much and when I've, uh, I've talked to other people about this in the past, you have this uh, metaphor of um, playing to your strengths, which tells the story of an animal school. Do you know that one? No. It's a school for animals and everything is taught. You learn to swim, you learn to fly, to climb, to dig, to run. Um, 
And of course, the eagle is great at flying, but not so great at swimming. Mm -hmm. And of course, the, the fish is great at swimming, but cannot climb a tree, etc., etc. So the only animal that passed the course was some kind of monkey that could do a little bit of everything. Oh. But the, the morale behind it is why can't we play to our strengths? Why do we have to be some kind of half-assed monkey that can do a little bit of everything, but may not be very good in the process and might not be very happy. Right. Um, so, yeah, I've, that's that's something that I also try to live by myself. I'm very critical. I always see what I can do better, but sometimes it's also good to just say, no, I'll, I'll play to my strengths in this setting. Okay, let's continue with the conversation now in the context of research collaborations. Because mm -hmm. the same issues about culture, where you are coming from, your values, this uh, idea of strength play when you partner for projects internationally. And I know you have done a lot of international collaborations. Can you share with us some of those memorable situations in trying to collaborate with researchers from other countries that have stuck in your mind up to the day, this day? Um. With, uh, with regards to successes or things that, that went... Any, anything that is memorable. It can be funny, it can be sad, whatever. Well, I think I've learned in the past that um, I have the skill to collaborate with many different people. Mm -hmm. I'm good at assessing a situation and then thinking, okay, for this situation, it would be better if I become a little bit more like this, become a little bit more like that. But that's also uh, a very uh, energy-consuming uh, situation. And one of the great pleasures that was induced uh, by a bad thing, which was the pandemic, uh, was having the opportunity to collaborate with people where you are just more on the same frequency. Yeah. And the, yeah, the, 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 the joy that that sparks, but also... The, the quality you can help each other develop. And uh, one of the collaborations that has influenced me the most in the last two, two and a half years is together with Lara Varpio, who I by chance reconnected with through a Twitter chat, uh, which I still don't know how to work, thank you very much. But I woke up one morning and I saw myself being tagged in millions of messages and I didn't understand what had happened. <laughs> And there was this Harvey, no, Harvard Macy chat. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it was on qualitative methodology. And I, some of my papers were uh, tagged in it. Um, so through that, I reconnected with Lara, who was the, the moderator of that chat. Mm -hmm. um, and we thought, yes, no, we enjoy each other's company. We really need to do a project. Um, so we started out with a project together with uh, Abigail Konopaski on narrative analysis, which got published last year in medical education. Um, and then Lara said, you know, I'm, I'm preparing this special issue or uh, um, a series on a literature review. I know you've done reviews. Would you like to write that? And then I said, well, I'd love to, but I fear it will uh, take me away from my passion projects. And that was a passion project. And it's what turned out to become the Wolf Paper, as we now call it, uh, Challenging Intra-Professional Workplace Education Norms. I had been lugging that paper around forever and I could not find the right angle. Mm -hmm. 
And I talked to many different people about it, but I could not find the right angle. And I pitched the idea to, to Lara. And then she made me see that actually what I hadn't discovered myself, that I had a far more critical theory intention or a critical perspective than I had previously acknowledged. Okay. And when that was foregrounded, the story became a lot clearer. And we were, yeah, I had a draft, but it only took a couple of months and then we were able to submit. Mm -hmm. And that was, yeah, one of the, the, the highlights <laughs> that, uh, that arose in a collaboration, started in the pandemic, international. Um, and I think learning that if you find a group of like-minded people, if you are so lucky to find that group mm -hmm. that you gel with um, and have similar ideas, but you can also challenge each other, yeah. uh, bring in different perspectives. Uh, yeah, I've, I've really started to, uh, to see that potential and enjoy it instead of just deciding, okay, I can change myself a little bit to fit in this research project. Yeah. I still, I still enjoy doing that too, but the other type of collaboration is really what, uh, what has brought me a lot in the last couple of years. Yeah, and you're right, like the Jane part as a person, I think is, is key to that, mm -hmm. those collaborations. Like I like how you say, like being in the same frequency. You don't, you're not in the same frequency with everybody. So finding those people is, is gold. Absolutely. So we have a few more minutes and I like always to end with what I call now the little things in life. So simple questions to get to know you a little bit better as a person. So what's an activity outside research, outside academia that gives you so much joy? And you talk about you draw and you like music, but other than that, that people might not know about activities that you enjoy. I think some people know uh, that know me better, but I really enjoy uh, walking. Okay. Hiking. It's not really hiking. I just, it's not that I take on a backpack and I go into the wilderness. We don't have any wilderness here in the Netherlands, <laughs> to be honest. Um, but I really enjoy walking and taking pictures as I walk. Okay. So I started doing this daily in the pandemic that before I opened up my laptop in the morning, I would go for a walk just here in the vicinity. And because it was the same damn walk every day, <laughs> I started to take pictures of things that I noticed. And it could be like a snail crossing the road or architecture or great cloud porn, as they say in Instagram, hashtag cloud porn. Yeah. Um, and just being more mindful of where I was. Okay. And um, the actually some of these pictures got published in a local newspaper here. Oh, cool. So that was a, a, an interesting uh, sidetrack. And my colleagues were like, oh, we didn't know. And oh my God, you could have an alternate career. And, <laughs> you know, the thing is, I take all these pictures with my iPhone. I don't really want to go walking around with a big and lens and everything. That's not my thing. But walking in general, and also um, I started to do a long distance track here in the Netherlands with one of my friends. It's okay. literally from north to south and it ends in Maastricht. Okay. We're about half, halfway. We're now stuck at a very gnarly point with river crossings where it would take a long time to get there by, by public transport. Okay. Um, because that's what we do. We walk from train station to train station. Um, okay. Just walking. Oh, that's awesome. So there is another thing about um, 
Dutch culture. And I was so impressed because I'm not really good at it, which is cycling. When I we know. visited uh, for a riding masterclass, we arrived there and they gave us bikes. And I was freaking out because, <laughs> oh my gosh, it was unbelievable how things work. I, I was just amazed of how things flow and nobody crashes. What is it about biking that becomes this second nature to Dutch people? What does it infuse in the culture of people, you think? Ah, good question. Um, the funny anecdote, when I visited the Wilson Center, the first thing I wanted to do was get a bike to get to the Wilson Center every day. And they said to me, do you want to get killed? Yeah, exactly. Really? <laughs> what are you thinking, honestly? Because here, if you look at the streets, the only people that wear a helmet are on an e-bike, so it goes faster, or they're foreign. Yeah, us. <laughs> it would be good if we wore helmets, but we're, yeah, we're just not brought up like that. And yeah, I don't know really what the history is behind the great love of biking in the Netherlands. I only can think of the fact that we're, we're a small country. Uh, distances within a city are easy, easily traveled by bike. It's quicker than walking. It's cheaper than having a car. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's, it's relatively safe. We have a lot of bike lanes everywhere. And when you learn to drive a car here, you're specifically trained to mine bicycles. Mm -hmm. So I recently heard that they introduced something in the UK called the Dutch Grab, which is when you exit your car on the driver's side, you take the handle of the car with your right hand so that you are forced to look over your shoulder oh. and can see whether there's bikes coming. Oh, brilliant. So we're trained in, in yeah, when you learn to drive a car to do this, but... In the UK, they felt they could call it the Dutch Grab. So if that's our contribution to safety <laughs> in traffic, excellent. That's very good. Yeah, I was just wondering if, I, like, in terms of culture, uh, what, what does it give to Dutch people, the fact that they bike all over? Flexibility and freedom, I'd say. Okay. Um, and I don't think it's, it's more of a I need to go places yeah. Because everyone has a bike. People often have multiple bikes. So, uh, for example, my, my colleague, Erik Driesen, who you will have met, he will have a bike to just travel to work, but also to a sporting bike, a racing bike. Mm -hmm. um, what you see here in traffic a lot is if people have young children, they have a, yeah, yeah what do you call that? We call it the buck feet. Uh, it means that you literally have a, a section in front of your bike. Yeah, it's a box. It's a thing. With safety, uh, um, how we call that, safety belts, uh -huh. um, so that you can transport your children to daycare. Yeah, I saw them all the time. I was so amazed. Yeah, yeah. But I, but I love what you said, the flexibility and freedom. I think it actually translates into the way you think and the way you work. Because every Dutch person I've met, friends and, and colleagues, is this ability to just interact with anybody. Would you agree? I well, I think that there is many individuals. Uh, of course, well, hmm. you have a lot of individuals in the world, of course, and they are more introverted or extroverted. And I think what helps Dutch people to interact with anyone is language. So if you travel to the Netherlands, you'll find that a lot of people speak English, even yeah. though our native language is Dutch. But um, I think the roots of the Netherlands are very much into trade. 
there is a dark side to that as well, of course, with the VOC and, and uh, slave trade and everything. But the, the nature of the country is a trading nation. And if you then speak multiple languages, that is, is good for business. Right. Um, and in, they, they already start with uh, teaching English in primary school here. Mm-hmm. And everyone in high school will have had some years of German and French. Okay. Um, so that to me says more about kind of the, the Dutch history, historical culture. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I think the Dutch, they are not as... Um, afraid i'd say to interact or i would say some people find us too blunt because we're a little yeah we're for example if i think of my indonesian and japanese students they're very high distance high power distance society very much uh respective of elders and everything where here it's lower power distance more egalitarian more feminine culture where it's more together and we we talk to each other doesn't matter who you are um so yeah perhaps and some some people experience that as blunt and depending on where you are in the country i'd say that there's definitely regions which are more blunt than others (laughs) in the south we're a little bit more soft-spoken but then also a little bit more you know politics behind doors that aren't how you want to have an open conversation um but there's regional differences uh, in that sense but okay. yeah language speaking oh, multiple languages and yeah the, the the freedom i think uh the dutch don't really like to be told what to do <laughs> that's a very bold and general statement i'm aware um but uh, yeah, it's not a, it's, yeah, I don't think we do very well with power. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's good to know. So my final question, usually the same, but uh, for everybody is, you talked about having many interests. So I, I hope you will choose something different. If you hadn't chosen to be an academic, to be in university or a researcher, what do you think would you have become? Paul, what would I have become? Yeah. I've considered many things. I considered teaching. Yeah. My brother eventually became a teacher as well. So educational blood runs where it can go. It's within the family, definitely. Yeah. I've considered acting. Oh yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's I definitely wouldn't do anymore nowadays. Um, yeah. What would I become? Well, I have to say that what I really enjoy is coaching and mentoring people. So I think I would have crafted a job with those those characteristics, helping people make steps in their life, whether it's kind of personal development or more professionally related. Um, I really like to see how I can help people, but also how to make things better, right? Optimizing situations, whether it's within teams or for individuals or in organizations. Um, as long as I can help to optimize, get people one step ahead, that uh, that is what attracts me. So I'd craft something with those characteristics, I think. A coach, that would be great. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Renee, thank you very much for your time. It was a very enjoyable conversation. You're welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.
This has been The Curiosity Habit. This podcast is hosted by Syra Cristancho and produced by Monica Molinero. You can find all our episodes on podcast apps like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.